Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to our cabin in the Shenandoah for another week's stories. I did want to mention another scary movie that I happened to see just before we get on to our fiction for the evening. Last week, I talked about a movie from Korea, and today, I'll tell you about another one. Did you happen to see the movie World War Z? It was okay for me, not great, not bad, somewhere in the middle. But there was one thing I particularly liked about the execution of the zombie movie, and that's how much the film's zombies were brutalized. So many scenes of the zombies climbing over each other, pushing against their neighbors with no consideration for them at all, even trampling each other. Seng Ho Yeon's train to Busan builds on that style of zombies, but puts the camera much closer to the seething mass of zombies boiling forward. Although the film I mentioned last week, The Wailing, I believe, loses a good deal in translation, Train to Busan does not. I feel that it presents its ideas in a very straightforward manner. I'm not sure how hard it is to get your hands on a copy of it, but if you're into Korean cinema or zombies, I'd recommend this one. And watch for the very ending scene. I felt that it was an homage to the original The Night of the Living Dead, but couldn't bring it all the way home, which was just a style choice. I won't say any more, because I don't want to ruin it for anyone. Oh, and speaking of Korean cinema, Busan is the home of the annual Busan International Film Festival, or BIF for short, which is the Cannes of Asia. On to our stories for the evening. First up will be a story from Sarah Bickley. Sarah Bickley is a student at the University of Montana. Her short fiction has been printed in Cover of Darkness and Tales of the Talisman, and has been podcasted by Pseudopod and Cast of Wonders. And now, Sarah Bickley's The Cavern of the Yeth Mai. Ian phoned me at my hotel the day before yesterday, almost as soon as I got back. I can't say I wasn't glad to hear from him. I had lost touch with so many of my friends while I was studying abroad. But it was so typical. He didn't ask me out for a drink or even say so much as, Welcome home, Moira. No, he wanted me to work. Ian was always insensitive like that. I shouldn't speak ill of him, though, 
not now. It was the project, of course, the thing that occupied all his time after he left the university five months ago. Our mutual friends, in their few communications while I was away, had told me a little about it. They said Ian was digging holes down by the lake. They never mentioned why, but I knew better than to think he was merely treasure hunting. It isn't that I understood his religious beliefs or the unorthodox scientific opinions that accompanied them, but I was certain they were the reason for the project. What else could impel Ian, indolent, bookish Ian, to devote himself to physical labor for almost half a year? I decided to go. I felt rootless and restless after being so long away from home, and I was eager to see a familiar face, even Ian's. And even his expectations were vague. It was hard not to respond to the excitement in his voice. Enough of this. I want to record what happened at the lake while I am still able to write. When Ian came to get me, I only recognized him because of his truck, a rattling old Chevy with blistered paint the color of pea soup. He'd had it since high school. Ian himself looked completely different. The slight pudginess of a few months ago had been replaced by a sinewy, underfed look. His fingers had grown bony, making his knuckles look unnaturally wide. His blonde hair was shaggy, his face sunburnt, his eyes sunken and overbright. He smelled faintly of sweat. He was just as maddeningly taciturn as ever, though. He muttered hello as I got into the pickup and didn't say another word until we stopped, about a half hour later, outside the woods near the lake. After parking by the side of the road, he hauled a long ladder out of the bed of the pickup and had me take the two shovels and two flashlights that were with it. I couldn't see why we needed flashlights. It was scarcely ten in the morning, and the sky was cloudless. I followed Ian through the narrow bands of woods to an expanse of barren ground on the east shore of the lake. The area was pocked with unfinished diggings that ranged from single upturned spadefuls to squared-off excavations that looked like shallow graves. The earth was bare, black, and spongy-textured, though it did not seem moist. "'I've wasted a lot of time here,' said Ian, picking places at random. "'But I just went over the calculations again. There was a passage in one of those texts that I hadn't realized was relevant.' It irritated me the way he acted as though I should know what he was talking about. So this time, there's actually a good chance I've got the right place. If we go down a few feet, shouldn't be more than four or five and it might be less, and don't hit anything, it's a bust. I'll buy you dinner and we can try again another day. If we do break through, though, you're welcome to come down with me. I've got a pretty good idea what it'll be like, and as long as you stick by me, it should be reasonably safe. Ah, here we are. He led me to a dowel stuck in the ground a few yards from the edge of the water where the soil was particularly dark and loose. He set down the ladder and grabbed one of the shovels. Let's get digging, he said. We've got a lot to get through. I should have realized what hard work it would be. Within minutes, my lower back was hurting and my hands felt cramped and clawed. I wish I'd brought sunglasses, too. The glitter of sun on the lake threatened to give me a headache. But we had something to show for our work. The soil was changing. A few inches below the surface, its color faded from off-black to chocolate brown, and it seemed to be growing lighter still. Our digging soon revealed a stratified, earth-tone rainbow. The brown shaded into burnt orange, the burnt orange into mustard yellow, the yellow into beige, and at the lowest point, three feet down, was a spot of chalky white. Ian had been growing increasingly excited, almost frantic, as the work progressed. But when he saw the white soil, he became completely still. Give me your shovel, he said slowly. It's heavier. I handed it across, wincing as the wooden handle scraped against a broken blister on my right hand. Ian motioned me to stand back, then knelt by the hole. He heaved the shovel over his head and plunged the blade into the patch of white. It went deep, and when he pulled it up, I saw that our digging opened into a cavity of some sort. Ian beckoned me, and together we knocked the hole wider, sending particles of crumbling white soil sifting into the space below. 
The ladder was, I think, 15 feet, and it almost wasn't long enough. It didn't even come to ground level, but stopped halfway up the side of the pit. Ian switched on his flashlight and jammed the handle into his jeans pocket. I did the same and followed him down the ladder. Passing through the thin layer of white soil, I felt an odd pressure on my body, as though I were squeezing into a very narrow space, though the hole was wide enough to pass through easily. The pressure ceased as my head cleared the opening and I completely entered the cavernous space. The warm, still air smelled slightly of alcohol. The ceiling was high. Horizontally, the cavern extended indefinitely in every direction. Something occurred to me. Ian? Yes? When we started down the ladder, the lake was to our right, wasn't it? Yes. After we got down, we turned around. The lake should be on our left, but there's a, a space there. Where exactly are we in relation to the lake? We're nowhere near it. Ian turned left and started walking. Had I not known his methodical cast of mind, I would have thought he'd chosen the direction solely to tweak me. The cavern was quite silent, although the floor was hard as obsidian. Our footsteps made no sound. My vague feeling of uncanniness only increased when my eyes adjusted and I realized there was a light source within the cavern. Two of them, actually. The first, and at this point the brighter, was a series of orange markings on the flat black ceiling. They were widely varied, from broad stripes and splotches to spidery or craze-like designs, to figures that seemed almost alphabetic and had a steady and pervasive glow. One arrangement in particular caught my eye a character that resembled a sketch of a tree branch repeated thrice and surrounded by a circle with five breaks in it. I spotted this cluster several times as we walked. The second light source was a powdery, luminescent dust scattered on the ground, evenly, for the most part, but there were bare patches, and in places the dust was gathered into little rounded heaps. Switch off your flashlight, he said. In the near darkness, the glow of the dust was much more noticeable. It had a distinct color, too, which I could not place. I found myself mentally checking it against the whole spectrum, but without a match. The quality of the luminescence reminded me of a black light, but the color was something else, something alien and unpleasant. Ian scooped up a handful of the dust and held it toward me. Put out your hand. I hesitated. Put out your hand, he repeated. They can't hurt you. I put out my hand. He poured the dust into my palm. It had the sliding, cakey feeling of cornstarch. Now drop it. I tossed the dust away. Harmless or not, I was glad to be rid of it, and rubbed my hands together to remove the remaining particles from my skin. But there were no particles. No trace of dust remained on my hand. By the glow from the ceiling, I could see Ian grinning. Neat, huh? I've read a lot about these little fellows. The Yathmai, they're called. They just slide right off you, provided your skin is dry. It better be dry. They just love water, and they hardly ever get any. But apart from that, they can't stick to you when they're under the signs. He stood and switched his flashlight back on. Apparently they can be pretty nasty when they're not under, though unless you know how to deal with them. We walked for a long time, without conversation and with little apparent change in our surroundings. There was almost a kind of tedium to it. The cavern seemed to have exhausted its store of surprises, and I was still too stunned to do any hard thinking about the ones it had already dealt. I wished I had worn my watch. I stole a glance at Ian's, but it read 927, which didn't seem likely, and the date was wrong. Ian seemed filled with nervous energy and maintained a pace too quick for my liking. He stopped periodically, but not to rest, only to inspect the masses of dust on the floor, or to stare up at the ceiling and mutter under his breath. After one of these stops, he resumed walking at a much slower pace. At first, I thought we had circled back to our entrance for there seemed to be a draft blowing the dust around, but no, this was plainly a different part of the cavern. I could tell by the marks on the ceiling. 
They were dimmer and more widely spaced and contained fewer of the alphabetic symbols I had noticed earlier. The dust seemed both more abundant and brighter than before. It lay more than an inch thick on the ground, shifting and duning like sand in the Sahara. Soon we came to a point where the markings entirely ceased. Ian again stopped walking to stare up at the ceiling. This time he switched off his flashlight and motioned me to do the same. We stood only about ten yards apart, but the darkness was so nearly complete that I could not see Ian at all. Bright as the dust was, its light did not penetrate far. The orange markings above me were sparse and very faint. Above where I estimated Ian was standing, there were none at all. I felt no breeze on my face, but the dust whipped about more forcefully than ever, stinging through the fabric of my slacks. Its movement was even wilder near Ian. I could see sheets of it rising man-high and then dropping down to join an ever-moving arabesque on the ground. I had a vague notion that it was moving to some purpose. Before the idea was complete, before I could speculate how dust, even this bizarre dust, could be capable of forming a purpose, I recognized that all the movement centered on a single area and ceased at a certain spot. A pile began to form. Gradually the glow became brighter until its light penetrated the darkness well enough to see by, and what I saw... The pile was formed around Ian, drifted as high as his chest, and the level was visibly rising. He stood completely still, his eyes closed, his lips moving without a sound. I was already running toward him, unthinkingly switching on my flashlight, an utterly redundant act. The off-color glow had become blinding. Ian's eyes opened as the beam fell on his face. He looked straight at me and said, calmly it seemed, but in a choked and croaking voice. Go back and wait for me under the signs. The dust drifted around him even more rapidly than before. It rose up his neck, shelved out under his chin. He whispered something. I think it was, I was wrong. Then the dust filled his mouth. A second later, his head was completely covered. Where Ian had been, there was nothing but a loose, quivering column of dust. I stared at it, dazzled and unafraid, and for a moment I thought I understood why he had gone out from under the signs. I don't know what was in my mind at that moment. I can't get it back. When I blinked, the enchantment broke. Ian was still in there, still in danger, and I had to act. I reached forward to wipe the dust from his face. My fingertip caught the contour of his nose, soft and almost excessively pliable, with an overlay of moist grit that would not rub off. I pressed harder, drawing a finger down the bridge of his nose, and it gave. The narrow hump of bone and cartilage pushed in as easily as wet clay. I pulled my hand away. It was caked with dust and blood. I slapped at the dust with some idea of getting it off Ian before it could do more harm. It scattered easily, and several seconds passed before I realized I had cut the column to half its height and Ian was not inside. I panicked, dropped the flashlight, turned and ran blindly. It was suddenly difficult to move. I felt cold, heavy, almost drowsy. But I did not allow myself to stop until I was well under the signs. When the orange above finally outshone the weird color below, I paused to take stock. Ian was probably dead and certainly gone. I had no light and almost no idea of my location. The cavern was vast and undifferentiated. Flat floor, flat ceiling, no landmarks. Except the signs. I looked up. None of the symbols seemed familiar so I decided to chance a little exploration. I turned left and walked ten paces, looked at the ceiling, recognized nothing, another ten paces, still nothing. I counted back to my original position and repeated the process in the other direction. At ten paces, I still recognized nothing, but at twenty... A cluster of three branch-like characters surrounded by a broken circle... I could see two more of these clusters, far off to either side of the first one I'd spotted, 
with other, less coherent symbols between. One cluster was a bit dimmer, the other a bit brighter. I moved to stand under the brighter one. There was yet another, almost imperceptibly brighter, farther one. They seemed to be laid out in a line. I quickened my pace, avoiding the heaps of quiescent yethmai on the ground, continually checking the ceiling to make sure I was still following the signs. I felt like I would never stop walking. My feet burned. My back ached. I developed a crick in my neck. The heavy, chemical atmosphere made my head swim. Many times I wanted to sit down and rest, but I couldn't. Not with those little beasts all around. I couldn't tell whether I was making any progress until I became aware of a faint but wholly natural light. There was our ladder, with sunshine streaming down on it. I climbed out and plodded toward the woods, falling once when I stepped into one of Ian's old diggings. I didn't have much trouble finding the truck, and the keys were on the dashboard, thank God. The clock said noon, but I know we were gone longer than that. I drove to Ian's place. I brewed myself a pot of coffee. There's plenty of coffee here, and no food at all. And I've been going through his papers all afternoon. The first thing I found, on the desk in the bedroom, was a binder full of wide-rule notebook paper covered in Ian's handwriting. Most of the pages are nonsensical sequences of letters, probably a cipher of some kind. I haven't found a key for it. Also in the binder are a few pages of mathematical formulae and calculations, some lists of numbers, and a piece cut from a local map showing the land to the east of the lake. One page, the first, is written in plain English, in round cursive letters two lines tall. It reads, The Yethmai, prisoners of the gods, will make a god of him who frees them. There's nothing else lying about openly. Ian's books are banal, detective novels and a few ordinary textbooks, and his computer is clean. But in a locked drawer, the key, I finally realized, was on the same chain as the truck key, I discovered a thick sheaf of papers, mostly in an alphabet I do not recognize. It may be the same as that of the signs. Some are photocopied. Others are written out in Ian's characteristic heavy strokes. Two are written in another hand on what appears to be very old parchment. One of these contains a drawing similar to the arrangement of symbols I recognized on the cavern's ceiling. There was a can of pink spray paint in the truck. I've copied the cluster onto Ian's ceilings, once in every room. I don't know if it alone is enough to stop the Yethmai, or if anything can stop them when they've already begun their work. But I have to at least try. I don't want to lose my whole hand. It started in the broken blister, but now my entire right forefinger is swollen and paralyzed. Beneath my skin, I can see the color. My finger glows with it when I switch out the lights, and I think it's spreading to my thumb. So I can't write much more. I'm going out soon. I'm going to drive back to the lake. I'm going to take a knife and cut away all the infected flesh. It will cut easily, I tried. The skin is so taut it splits right open, and there's only soft wetness inside. I'm going to throw it in the cave with Ian's papers and cover the hole over, and pray the Yethmai never get out. If you find this and I'm not back, don't come looking. That was Sarah Bickley's The Cavern of the Yethmai, as read by Amanda Perrot. Amanda Perrot really enjoys narrating, listening to audiobooks, and reading. She especially loves singing and writing original multilingual, multi-instrumental music, under the name First Person Singular. She currently lives in Michigan, where she just released her second album. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Amanda. Our second story of the night comes to us from Diane Auerbuck. Diane Auerbuck teaches high school English and history to Cape Town schoolgirls. She knows that someday she will have to go back to Kimberley. Gardening at Night won the 2004 Commonwealth Best First Book Award, Africa and the Caribbean, and was shortlisted for the International Dublin Impact Award. She is also author of a collection of short stories, Cabin Fever, and the novel Home Remedies. 
In the submission, I did not see that this was the first appearance of the story, but it looks like that it is included in the collection of shorts, Cabin Fever, available on Amazon. So check that one out. And now, Diane Auerbuchs. There is a light that never goes out. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Sooner or later, everyone came to Kotnahora. In the green fields of the new Czech Republic, the empty factories and castles moldered quietly to themselves. When he looked out from the window of the train, Thomas Haber saw that there were graveyards settled between the whispering farm fields. There was no way to tell where the boneyards ended and the fields began. The crops seeded themselves and sprang from the same earth. Kotnahora, Kotnahora, simple to say, even for foreigners, even for those who found themselves on the train from Praha when they had meant to go somewhere else. The travelers rustled their maps and squinted at the legends, angling up to the light of the thin paper, thumbed and receding and unfoldable along quite the same lines. One of them was reading his book, he cringed when he saw it and held his journal more tightly. Luckily, no one would recognize him from his author photo. The publishers had used an image of a uniformed Haber from another century. At least here in Eastern Europe, he would not see his young self stretched out on posters and billboards. Thomas Haber, the first of two children born at the same time, had never been a fearful man. In the manner of British Jews, he did not allow himself to be bent to the world of spirits. It was Halloween, the time when Christians set free the old ghosts to chase across Europe. He was immune. A pumpkin was a pumpkin. And Thomas the Twin was lucky to wander in English shops that laid them out so in hard, polished rows. The memory of famine lodged in the bright flesh divided by a clean slice of the knife. His family name was his shield, Haber, the one who's been passed over, and you could take that either way. Over the centuries, Jews had learned to toughen their hearts, but in the last decades he had seen the insult reclaimed, like a sliver of seabed made fit for dry living. No one said hebe anymore. 
The slake had been driven underground. Zionist, they said, instead. His sister Miriam had been given a cat named Israel. The thought of Miriam hurt his heart. Thomas the twin distracted himself by peering at the other travelers. He pressed his hands to his eyes and sighed. How time doubled back on you, stretched out or pulled you back to the other places, so that the events of forty years ago seemed more real than the present. The faces of prisoners of war, rather than the Japanese girls here on the train, who slept with their small mouths open, the wide-eyed present Americans tonguing their phrase-books. How could a person's body be in one place and their mind in another, he was nearly eighty, and still he didn't know. And neither did Miriam, though nowadays she had plenty of time to contemplate these mysteries as she lay swelling softly in her hospital bed, swelling like a woman left for dead, horizontal. The chemotherapy had turned her hair silver. It was falling out in strands. Every morning the clumps lay on her restless pillow, marking time like candle wax. Thomas the twin had abandoned his interviews, his TV appearances, the lunches. He triangulated the route between Miriam's empty house and his dark one and the hospital, a zigzagging arrow on a war room map. Someone had to feed Israel. The cat had settled at last in Miriam's chair, and there was no budging it. How was it, Thomas wondered, when he rattled pellets in the plastic dish, that someone could be gone but leave behind their hair in the brush, their slippers under the bed, Chanel number no. five on a cushion. He stood in Miriam's fading, flowery living room with the bowl in his hand and considered the mountains of shoes collected by thrifty guards at Bergen-Belsen, sad and momentous, the old skins left behind. When his cell phone rang, he ignored it. The publicist could wait. The train clacked. Hayward turned his mind away from his sister, but she was replicated in the faces he saw on the notices, in his book, in the eyes of his fellow travelers. The hospital did not allow mirrors near the terminal patients. The nurses kept the dying from taking their last image into the next world. He kept Miriam's face in his head. He was preparing himself, he knew. There was so much to grieve. The dead of centuries, his old life, now Miriam. Thomas the twin peered at a rusting tractor in the rich check grass and wondered, what will I be called when she is gone? But Miriam was not dead yet. In one of her lucid periods, she had turned from her memory to her waiting twin and clamped her hand on his wrist. Its heat made him shiver. She was burning in her bed. Thomas wanted to push her off, but he could not. She had held him close, whispering, as though she was telling him a marvelous secret, as though there were other people in the room who would care. "'Just go if you want,' she said, and her face gave him up. "'It will take forever. Come back and tell me all about where you've been.' Her hand was a hot bracelet on his flesh— he remembered being eight years old, Miriam smiling, her black ringlets springing from her head, asking, Do you want a Chinese bangle? He stood next to her bed, and he lightly said, Who needs to go all the way to the other side of the world when they have everything right here? He knew that he was part of a generation of people who were afraid of nothing, except to go traveling, not because they did not know what they would see, but because they did. There were a hundred civilian reasons to stay at home. Miriam replied, Don't worry, please, go. Let someone else feed Israel. Night after night she asked whether he'd made arrangements. She was no better. She was no worse. The two of them waited for a death that did not come. And so it was that he would travel alone through Europe again, to find the old places in the hope that they changed. He had known them by their other names, but he hoped to arrive there still. Ordinary towns in Germany, 
Poland, the Czech Republic, translated by historical account. He would pass through them and they would give up their ghosts, their pancakes and plagues, their imperial eagles, impalers. On each train he'd held his journal on his lap like an infant. The covers were threadbare, the naked white corners nudging at his palms. The two regarded each other. They were almost there. Haber made himself think about his here and now, this tiny mining town that for centuries had had its silver sprung from the resting underworld, its nuggets like teeth, like spectacles. Kotnahora had been long since stripped. The tiny town was famous now only for its ossuary, the collected bones of 40,000 victims of disease, the medieval people who paid for their proximity. Thomas the Twin would pay his respects to their skeletons resting in the bone church. He would look at death without turning away and then go back and describe its appearance to Miriam. The plague, whispered Thomas the Twin to himself, the Black Death. The ossuary would have the feel of the charnel house. All of the places people have been slaughtered and dissected in ways both savage and precise. It would murmur the history of scalpel and socket, expose the bony processes of illness and madness and suffering. It was in every cave and every crypt, the last hidey-hole of the Maccabees, the cellar and archive and oven, cool with ancient root systems or warm with animal breath, but always, always white, all the way back to the eye sockets. The old soldier sat with one hand pressed against the skin of his face. The optic nerves hummed with memory, and the eyeballs moved, dreaming, under his lids. There are some things in the world that are burned into the retinas, like looking at the sun. Afterwards, you are blind to the trivial. All the same, Thomas thought, you must feel your way back to the world of small things. The past is the past. Its story, its horror, must become just one part of your life. He thumbed the disintegrating weave of the journal. When the concentration camps were forced open in 1945, the Allied soldiers saw simple skeletons that fell as they turned to their liberators. The soldiers, weeping, gave new soap to the inmates. The women crouched jealously over the bars, washing themselves among the remains of the children that floated near them in the water. The soldiers gave half-loaves to the men, who still ate worms as they clutched the bread because they had had to eat worms to live and now could not tell the difference. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Adam Haber, DSO, had given his men orders to marshal the German prisoners of war so that they could begin the clean-up. He saw that the real work needed was the digging of mass graves, and the Germans were the only ones strong enough to wield spades. The soldiers were still there because they were unsure of where to go. Who among the civilians would take them in? Their officers had fled, leaving orders to destroy everything. The abandoned ones stoked up the others like gingerbread witches. They burned whatever they found, and they burned it as fast as they could. Haber ordered the supplanted German soldiers to dig more graves, more and more, an impossible number of holes in the ground. Their spades tore through the hard-packed soil like rents in the clothing of mourners. The Gentile mayors and the councilmen of the surrounding towns and a few daring citizens were shepherded, twittering through the gates to the camp. The civilians were there as gatekeepers, as witnesses— Initially, a few flashbulbs popped, louder than guns in the camp where it was true that no birds sang. Under the sky, the cameras fell silent, and a woman in her smart pre-war fashion fainted away, her red mouth slack with shock, strain unlacing her manners. What did I do then, thought Haber, when I was faced with the horror of the masked dead? I did what we all did. I defended myself with ink and pen, mightier than the swords that disintegrated into ashes. Thousands of soldiers, men and women, did. 
They wrote and wrote in the evenings after they were given permission to take off the boots that had tramped through the remains of people. They kept walking during the day, and in the night they kept writing the cosmos back, squeezing it between the lines, saying that the past was the past, and this would be just one part of their long and varied lives. Haber himself had given his orders, and then he'd crept away out of the sight of his men and the Germans and the prying, fainting townsfolk. He had found pen and paper, which were also materials of war, and then he had written until his hand cramped. He had tried to continue with the other one, but his writing was staggering and slow. He was forced to stop though his amazement and astonishment of heart continued to reel on the clean ceilings of far-removed rooms down the years. Afterwards, Haber began to think that record-keeping was less than angelic. It had begun as the opposite of the Holocaust, that arson and scattering which was intended to wipe out love and instead lit the true flame in the altar lamp of memory. But then in old age his journal had been suddenly published, to personal discomfort and public acclaim. In America especially, the intersection of curiosity and collectability made Haber famous. His publishers papered his old army photo on tube station walls. He looked out at himself wherever he was. Haber occupied podiums at launches, wordless when it came to the moment of testimony. His tweed jacket scratched. He was caught between the guilt of describing extinction and repaying the debt of survival. The remains are still there, thought Thomas the twin, where he sat safely on the train as it jogged interminably towards Kotnahora. The bones had been laid under the earth, the loss and jumble of them femur and funny bone, new families knitted together in the underworld. He had seen it done. Now, with every place he revisited, the knowledge grew. There were no answers. He was afraid that if he dug the bones up, the eye sockets would be empty. The dead did not speak except to say, We were here, but now we are not. You who are living, remember us. Haber had kept one thing back, subtracted it from the version in print, though it muttered between the covers of the original account. He could not share it with an audience, not even his sister, and he never read it again. After the war, when the aid bales began to come in with the arrival of the British Red Cross, one in particular seemed to be misdirected. Instead of the new dresses and shoes and the thousand coats of Joseph that would set the new world dreaming, it was stuffed with cosmetics, a consignment of red lipstick. Red as the ripe Czech cherries that made Kirsch all through the war. Red as the bloodline of the one guilty grandparent that flagged internees for the camps, red as the dead women against the walls inside. They fell on it, those hungry Jews, though they knew it was not for eating. The internees smeared their faces scarlet to set themselves apart from the identical skulls of their fellows. They believed that the angel of death had passed over. The ones who died after liberation so long and no longer, went to their mass graves with circus faces. One woman still clutched a tube as she lay in the makeshift mortuary. They could not pry the lipstick from her fingers, and it went with her into a colored afterlife. Thomas the twin wondered who would apply Miriam's makeup while he was away. When he took his hands away from his wet face, the train had stopped, as if the town had appeared expressly at his wish. The sky was Russian blue. Against it, the moons and stars of the saints' halos chimed, familiar and unfamiliar. They led him on like the star of Bethlehem. In the late afternoon, the autumn had spread itself flat against the roofs of the town. It was pierced by the spires of the ossuary. 
Gilt weather vanes were the visible center of the tiny settlement. They stretched out like the branches of a menorah, blinding when the sun caught them and set them aflame. Thomas the twin stood, dazzled, with his feet planted on the dusty other side of the world. He saw himself, a stooped man left on a platform which was no real resting place but only a way station, built for endless rickety contemplation. The walk to the ossuary was short. Where else was there to go? Still, Haber lost his way and had to ask for directions, pointing at the guidebook, gesturing death. When he came to it, he was surprised to find it surrounded by a modern graveyard. Entire families walked among the mounds, come to tidy and weep and make sure that the dead had remained fast, pinned down by the tombstones over their chests. The graves were well-tended, white-marbled and red-flowered, like underwater gardens. The headstones bore the particular smiling faces of the citizens of Kotnahora, not as they were at the moment of death, but as they were in decent middle age. How was it possible that a life can end up a dry memorial with a bunch of flowers drawn in tightly at the neck? Thomas the twin's head hummed with comprehension and with his own fate, his sisters. He thought of Josef Mengele, who called himself a doctor, who did his experiments without anesthetic on sets of Jewish twins. The last living members of the Haber family would not be separated now. Inside the dim ossuary it was so cold he could see his breath. Haber paid his pathetic entrance fee and descended the marble stairs like a debutante. He braced himself for the expected pickling and rot, but the million bones were quiet, scrubbed, baldly nondescript. At his feet the floor tiles locked firmly in place. Bone chandeliers clinked above his head. The bone coats of arms were plucked at by bone birds, and the bone cupids winked down over his shoulder. Thomas pivoted slowly, imagining the monk who had made it all, the man who had been driven slightly mad by the knowledge of the skeleton inside him. He had survived the plague that took everyone else. Why were some spared and others taken? On this point his god was silent, unhelpful. He looked at the carnage, worse than waste, and held fast to the universe in his head. His work was slow at first. He boiled down the bones in the monastery kitchens until they lost their smell of humanity. In his hands they became instruments, cutlery, tools. When they were stripped of flesh, he laid them out in the peevish European sun. Then he coated them with whitewash. They dried again. He fashioned the bones into pyramids and crown jewels and chains. His determination linked the wonders of the world back together. As he worked, the ready bones knocked hollow on the tiles of the monastery workshop, applauding his work. Their faint humming buzzed in Thomas the twins' old ears. The sound was everywhere, but no one else in the ossuary heard it. He swiveled his head around, up to the guardian angels sweeping across the ceiling. They say that the traveling temple, the Ark of the Covenant, was heralded by angels, the traces of women lost in the Old Testament, the ones who remember and protect. Shamash, the ancient Semitic god that through the ages meant attendant, caretaker, custodian, and then finally, synagogue janitor. Here I am, said Thomas the twin. I have tried to be all these things. I am listening. He craned his neck further towards the angels. The short sinews whined at the base of his skull. The cupids hovered and hummed. He saw their wings shivering with the cold. The bony circles of their heads multiplied were fleshed out, and among them he recognized another face. It shimmered down at him with its hair of silver and cheeks of gold. Miriam, murmured Thomas the twin. The few other tourists glanced at him, but he did not notice them. He was smiling up into the features of his sister.
He saw the light surging around her head. It blazed out into seven pillars of flame. Thomas the twin's last thought was a generous one. Remember us, he thought, those of us who were sunk in the past or rocketing into the future. Remember us in the here and now. The other visitors saw him fall heavily on the tiles. Fed by the pages of the book he clutched, the fire consumed him in minutes. It was utterly peaceful there in the hot white light of the Bone Palace in Kotnahora. The wishes from the old lives laid aside in the ashes, and the fears given over to burning. In the hospital bed, Miriam Haber's face relaxed on the pillow, her fingers unclenched. A handful of cindery confetti sifted down on the sheet, where the next morning it would puzzle the nurses. That was Diane Auerbach's There Is a Light That Never Goes Out, as read by Martin Rato. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show is produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.